You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. If you've traditionally worked in an office, then return to work is probably something that you and your company have been thinking and talking about a lot these days. Indeed, the nature of work has changed for almost everyone in the past year and a half, raising important questions about the future of the workplace and the workforce. In the retail and consumer goods sector, technology is, of course, a huge factor reshaping what work looks like. The migration to e-commerce and digital channels, contactless solutions, automation and robotics, both in stores and in warehouses, all of these are having and will continue to have a major impact on workers everywhere. And today we have two McKinsey partners who have thought quite a lot about this topic and we're pleased to have them with us. Brian Hancock is a partner in our Washington DC office. He's the global leader of McKinsey's work on talent. And those of you who listen to the McKinsey Talks Talent podcast will already be familiar with Brian. He has advised a wide range of talent intensive businesses, not just retailers, but also banks, healthcare providers, transportation companies, and so on. Thanks for joining us today, Brian. Thanks for having me. We also have with us Ashish Kotari, a partner based in the Denver office. He leads our Re-Energizing Organizations service line, which is focused on helping companies as they support employees in combating pandemic fatigue and increasing well-being. He has worked alongside many leading retailers and packaged goods players and has led transformation efforts across a wide range of product categories, including food and beverage, apparel, toys, cleaning products, and cosmetics. Thank you for being with us today, Ashish. So great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Terrific. So before we get into it, what has return to work looked like for you personally? Have you started traveling again? Are you wearing jackets and collared shirts again? Yeah, we're slowly opening up our office. We're doing it uh, in phases. But what I found most interesting is the client work has picked up with the demand on being uh, in person. And so we're taking... Uh, going on site visits, getting on airplanes. Honestly, it's great to be back. I did my first client trip um, two weeks ago um, where, you know, I got a chance to go see one of our clients that we've been working with over the last 12 months. We started working with them for the first time in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and so really, we hadn't actually seen everybody. And I have to tell you, it was uh, it was wonderful to be able to see them yeah. And, you know, return to work or return to office and, and future of work means many different things, even within just the retail and consumer sector. But as you've been talking to CEOs and business leaders, specifically in retail and consumer goods, what are their one or two biggest questions? There are two things that are top of mind. One, consumer demand has shifted and therefore the way work is done is shifted. You know, the pandemic has accelerated the shift towards online. And with that comes a shift towards the type of skills that are needed in headquarters, the balance of roles that happen in the field. I think the second you know, future of work trend is what does return to office mean for organizations that you know, have a national footprint where a lot of their employees, in fact, the majority of their employees have been coming to the store every single day? And what are the expectations for that staff? Do we expect them to come back because that's the expectation of the field staff? Or do we use this as an opportunity to rethink our talent because we're located in the heartland and some of the best tech talent hubs in the country are in places like 
Austin or Atlanta or the Washington DC area or Boston? And does this give those companies the ability to access that talent? But if they do, then how do we create the right connections? Are we saying they don't have to come into the office? How do we manage this tension of we're an organization that's in person? That's how we deliver our services with, hey, now for some of the corporate functions, we may be able to get better talent remotely. How do we resolve that, I think, is where we're seeing some of our uh, CEOs, you know, thinking through and thoughtfully wrestling. You know, I've had like 30 different conversations with uh, different uh, consumer uh, companies and, and frankly, non-consumer companies, right, uh, over the last even six weeks. You know, one of the themes that keeps coming back um, that they're wrestling with is the following, right? We knew before the pandemic that flexible working arrangements was literally one of the top benefits, uh, right, that uh, employees wanted. And so one of the ways in which that many of them are battling with is how do we actually manage the expectations and set the right rationale for why are we getting people back, right? Because uh, look, the numbers are quite stark. Across different generations, we're seeing anywhere from 25 to 35% of the people who actually want to continue working from home 100% of the time, right? Um, and then there are different percentages for, you know, two to three days a week um, in the office. Very few percentage want to be in 100%. So how do we actually manage that communication, that expectation setting? And in the context of that is the second big challenge that many companies are being forced to rethink, which is how will work actually get done in a world that is going to be increasingly hybrid? It's easy to say we're going to be hybrid, but it is uh, you know, really hard to figure out the details of how we're actually going to do work in that hybrid setting. Yeah. Yeah. And to some extent, everyone's kind of figuring this out as they go, right? So what are the best practices that you've seen? And then on the flip side, what are some of the most common mistakes that you're seeing companies make as they navigate this next normal? One of the best practices is really thinking through from a business standpoint, what work needs to be done in person and what work can be done remotely. And thinking about that at by role and even by task. Like what is the what is the work if I'm crunching through email for a day? Do I have to be in the office to do that? And how do we then segment into different roles, into different archetypes so we can say, hey, this type of job, hey, it's okay to be home one or two days a week to do this kind of work. When we need to do this other kind of work, let's do that in the office. And so being thoughtful in the segmentation and linking that segmentation to kind of how value is created. So being very clear that, hey, when we're in person and required to be in person, hey, let's make sure that we're optimizing that time. We've heard some clients describe, you know, coming to the office is the new offsite. It's the time when we have intentional interactions working together to advance what we can do jointly. I'll add a couple more. If you look at any external surveys that are out there, they're showing the same as what we are seeing internally that burnout is at an all-time high. You know, almost 60% of employees um, in a recent, you know, HBR survey reported feeling burnt out. And so how do we actually train employees to really tap into their inner resilience? The future world we are going into is going to be a fundamentally more volatile and unpredictable world. 
Yeah. So how do we actually build skills around adaptability and an ability to learn continuously? And, and let me pick up on that and tie it to something very practical, which is the daily commute. The daily commute was a time when you were largely alone with your thoughts. You might be listening to a podcast like this one. You might be listening to music. You might also be thinking through your day and what you need to do. And it's a time of transition from home life to work. And then the same way, the commute home is a time to reflect, decompress, process the day, and think through. And those that time for processing has been shown to be healthy. That separation between home and office has shown to be healthy. If we're in a world where that separation starts to blur more, as it has in the pandemic, teaching people how to inject that time for reflection, that time for transition, adopting their rituals are things that can very practically be done to help adjust to a world when that commute that had, although for all its frustrations, had some good mental health side effects. You know, how do you make that transition happen? if you're home more. And then if you multiply that times all of the other changes happening, you know, to Ashisa's point, teaching a broader and instilling a broader adaptability mindset and, you know, resilience tools is can be very beneficial. Adaptability and resilience, you know, sound like great words, but I imagine they're pretty hard to teach. I mean, it's not like technical skills or digital skills where you can sort of measure is someone getting better, right? Are there examples where you've seen companies really move the needle on this? Wow, like that is a really good way to teach adaptability, or that is a really good program they've got there for teaching resilience. First of all, let's define what adaptability and resilience is, right? Adaptability and resilience, we define it as the ability to bounce forward, not necessarily just bounce back to what it was, right? So implicit in that definition is this core ability to be able to learn. We looked back at research and we found and identified seven key mindsets and six core capabilities that resilient and adaptable people show. So there are things like growth mindset versus fixed, right? There are mindsets around abundance versus scarcity, which many of us are finding ourselves in. There are mindsets around agency, my ability to take action versus a victim. These are absolutely things that can actually be trained and we can measure them. The same goes for six fundamental capabilities. These are capabilities around self-awareness, a capability of perspective taking. So we can actually hold multiple perspectives versus hold on to simple stories or black or white or right and wrong. Capabilities around well-being. How do we think about us and take care of ourselves mentally, physically, and spiritually? There are skills and behaviors around building connection, connection with each other, and even translating simple moments. I'll give you an example. We, we do this with clients so much. You know, How many times do you ask, how are you? How many of those times are we really interested in actually hearing how the other person is? Or when somebody asks us that question, truly sharing how we are feeling, right? So even taking some of those simple moments of how are you to give people a chance to kind of really open up and share can actually increase connection. Um, and then there are two others around, you know, uh, purpose, right? So how do we think about the organizational purpose and reason for existing and tying it to an individual purpose? And how do we train leaders to create more psychologically safe and vulnerable environments? 
So these are capabilities that are trainable. Um, one of our clients actually took their top 250 leaders through a series of six uh, of these sessions to help them build these skills and rolled out another program for about 50,000 employees, which was a digital program. And the best part was they measured it. And they measured it both through their inputs and inputs from others who these individuals worked with. And what we found was amazing. Significant improvements with all those who actually actively engaged in those learning journeys. So we're excited about that. And I think that is the opportunity uh, out there for companies, right, to really build these more adaptable and resilient workforces. I often think a sports analogy is helpful here. My son is a, a high school lacrosse goalie. Uh, high school lacrosse goalie who has a great game against a very good team will let in at least 10 goals. And resilience is a key part of what it takes to be a good lacrosse goalie. So I would think about how his coach talks to him, what he teaches him, which includes, you know, actually some meditative practices, but it's also the rituals the team has. Every team at the end of every game goes and gets their goalie. What does that do? That that shows it's a safe environment. Hey, you put in, you represent for, you worked hard for us. Hey, you let in a lot of goals and win or lose, we're going to go get you. So you see lacrosse teams run to their goalie. That's a ritual in the lacrosse world that is like, hey, this is how we're teaching our goalie who has psychologically one of the hardest roles uh, on the field to be resilient. How do you translate that to your organization? How do you think individually what coaching and interventions do you have? You know, you won't hit on everything, but you'll get a lot of the elements of what it takes to teach resilience because it's more than just a training. It's creating also the safe environment um, that you're operating in. So let's talk about skills more broadly because, you know, adaptability and resilience are some skills, but also, you know, the latest research from MGI has some staggering numbers, right? And I'll just pick out the U.S. figures. About 17 million people will need to change their occupations by 2030 because their jobs just won't be there anymore. So reskilling um, is obviously something that companies need to do. And McKinsey has been publishing a ton of material on reskilling. Um, more and more companies are being proactive about it. But what is your favorite example of a company that's really moving the needle on reskilling? I think the next horizon of reskilling we're going to see is really recognizing the skills that you learn in places like retail. So the Markle Foundation with McKinsey and the Atlanta Fed and group of other organizations has put forward a report as part of Rework America Alliance that shows that some of the most important skills that you learn that help you move from an entry-level role, whether it's in retail or other fields, one of the most important skills are some of those interpersonal skills that you learn on the job, customer service skills, other skills. And if you can learn that in retail and then transport that to healthcare, which is going to have huge growth, I think that's where the next unlock is. And to make that unlock happen, we've got to do a better job of recognizing the great skills that people do learn in retail and create the right credentials so that folks can then say, ah, here's somebody that's learned something in retail. And now we don't have to start from scratch on all the skills because the, some of the main skills in healthcare are some of those customer or patient-facing skills. Okay, now how do we add a little bit of technical skill onto it versus thinking about, hey, retail reskilling is 
about teaching somebody who used to be in a customer service role to code. You can do that too, but I think it's being more thoughtful about what the natural pathways are that build on the skills that you actually do develop, you know, day to day in your role. You know, Monica, I'll give you I'll give you an example of, uh, of another client of mine in consumer goods who's kind of you know tackled this. I I think they've done this so well. Um, so this is a you know a consumer goods uh, distribution company. Think about a bat- bottling and distribution company, okay? And historically, you know, a big part of what the sales force had to do, right? Like they go visit these accounts, you know, at least once a week in many cases. And one of the big part of their job was to be able to look behind the shelf and take inventory and use that as a way to then kind of put it into their systems. You know what is it that's selling, and what's the new order? Then you know work with the person in the front, right? Um, the the key uh, general manager or kind of the shop owner to then place the order. Well, today, right, with digital analytics, you don't need to do that, right? Like, uh, frankly, you know, before you even show up, you know exactly you can get reasonably close predictions of what are the sales, and hence, based on inventory, you can figure out how much you need to order. So they've done a wonderful job of actually retraining their sales force to worry less about that and focus on two or three other aspects, right? Number one, really building that relationship, um, really doing suggestive sales. Hey, what else is selling at other customers that you need to have in your account? You know, these are the hardest selling products or the next set of products. Uh, And then the second one is competitive intelligence. Now that I don't have to worry about how much of my stuff is on, I can actually keep my eye out for promotions that others are running, interesting displays that people are putting on the shelf, being able to capture that and send this back and reskilling, right? Because the other angle they could have taken was to just say, hey, I don't need a sales guy to do this, so I'm not going to need salespeople or I'm going to have one person cover, you know, five accounts rather than five people cover five accounts. And I could have gone the efficiency route, right? And I think this is one of the big things that I think is going to make a big difference where how do we fundamentally rethink the roles and the value that people are adding and then train them uh, to be able to kind of get there? I want to pick up on a bunch of things that you've said, because you've both sort of talked about like pulling apart a, a job, right, into tasks or skills. And Brian, one thing I've heard you refer to a few times is your experience at your first job, right, bagging groceries and all the skills that you learned in that job, customer service and empathy, et cetera. And you've said that companies need to better track the actual skills that people have and that people develop in their jobs as opposed to just their, you know, their job titles or their credentials. And that sounds perfectly sensible and, and great on many levels, right? It's great for the individual. It's great for the company. You can better put people in the right places. Plus, it can help you diversify your workforce when you're looking for skills rather than college degrees, et cetera. But it sounds so hard to do. Like, how do you even start documenting people's skills? It sounds like an enormous sort of data gathering challenge, like an IT challenge and, you know, an HR challenge to put that data to good use. So if I am a retail CEO and I want to start engaging in this skills-based thinking, right, what are my first steps? Well, I, I think it can happen at two levels. At the corporate level, have it as part of the annual performance conversation. Turn the performance review from how did you do this year to what skills did you build this year and start tracking where you are and what skills you've demonstrated towards what's required for the future. And if communications or teamwork or, you know, some of the, what some people call power skills, others call soft skills, if those are what's going to be important, let's track those. 
If it's important to pick up certain technical skills or digital skills, let's track those too. But we already have in the annual performance review a way to document. And we're starting to see some companies do that and then use the data gathered there to help better match people to opportunity. On the front line, there are a range of assessments that you can use as somebody comes in and as somebody progresses that can uh, you can use to show growth. You can even empower you know frontline supervisors to sign off on the badges that somebody could get you know as they demonstrate progression through the skills. So I think it's more a matter of defining the skills you want to track and being intentional about creating the process to do it. Uh, once, but once you define the skills, it's very doable to uh, track and credential. This is about fundamentally creating a learning culture, okay? And that is something that only that's at this, you know, at the top of the house. I think you know, if you set that intention, that we need to be a learning company, right? Satya, you know, Nadella says this beautiful, right? Um, when he reoriented Microsoft, and you look at the growth that they've had, he fundamentally pivoted them where he said, knowing is less important than learning, number one. I think number two is, listen, I think we need to fundamentally rethink how learning happens. Learning does not happen in classrooms. Learning happens in classrooms together with on the job in communities where we apply a lot of these things, right? So we need to rethink learning journeys that people need to take to be able to learn these new skills and migrate them towards the paths that they need to have. And number three, we need to actually measure our investments in learning with the same rigor that we actually manage investments in capital. This is investing fundamentally in human capital. And I've seen the weakest ROI kind of measurements when it comes to learning. And you know, as a result of that, L&D budgets are in a decline. They're in a free fall in a moment when we actually need that the most. So I think if you think about these three actions collectively, we want to become a learning organization. We want to go away from classroom-based training to integrated learning journeys, right, that actually support people to grow and learn. And we want to actually measure what we are investing into learning. I think we can, we can be really excited about the future that's going on, you know, and that's going to unfold. So that's great advice for CEOs and companies, right? What about if I'm the person bagging groceries? How should I think about, you know, documenting my skills, making sure I stay employable? What advice do you have for people whose jobs are potentially at risk of disappearing? Or actually, what, what advice would you give recent college graduates or people who are just starting out in the workforce? I think the advice I would have to somebody who is in my shoes of, of bagging groceries is to talk to colleagues, talk to parents, talk to friends, um, talk to supervisors, and define what a career ambition for you looks like. Set a vision for where it would want to go. In addition to setting their own vision, I think we collectively can do a better job recognizing those skills and creating a dialogue around, hey, if you're looking for this, think about this pool. You know, the cart pusher, the courtesy clerk, the cashier, you know, let's think of what those are. And there are tools like the Rework America Alliance tool that talks about, um, you know, career progressions that you can then point to and say, hey, if you want to go here, ah, okay, these are some of the typical pathway. And you can start to get inspiration and move. So there, there, we do need to do, you know, continue the work on that infrastructure. But I think it starts with having a vision of where you might want to go and then seeing how it links up with the infrastructure. 
Yeah. And uh, the other piece that I would highlight is, look, one of the positives that really came out of this uh, last 15 months or what we have navigated, right? Education, virtual education has really boomed. There are actually tons of really affordable courses on all of these capabilities, whether it is um, social skills, whether it is digital and analytics, um, right, that you can actually enroll in. And so combined with, uh, you know, Brian's suggestion on, you know, talk to people, find out what is it that, you know, you want to move into, what are some opportunities, right? Take the initiative to actually enroll and start to learn these um, and and use that as then an opportunity, right? Combined with that to have conversations with the employer that you're at. It's not easy. It, they do need help. I think um, to Brian's point, it's very, very true. They can't do it alone, but I would say the other part is equally true. That unless you know individuals decide to help themselves and take the lead, what the company does will not be enough either. Well, thank you, Ashish and Brian, for your advice and for being our guests today. There's much more to say about the future of work. So to our listeners, please visit McKinsey.com for our latest thinking on this topic. Until next time, I'm Monica Toriello.